The title of this morning's sermon is Learning from a Rich Fool. <clears throat> Learning from a Rich Fool. On Sunday morning, we're working our way through loose gospel verse by verse, and we started this parable last week, and we'll finish it this morning. Look in the verse 16 to get the context. It says, Jesus told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. So his harvest was so great that he ran out of room. And as a farmer, his crops are basically money, so it's almost like he has more money than he knows what to do with it. And so he asks a very good question. He says, what should I do with all of this? And there are many good answers to this, such as, let me give this back to God who has blessed me so plentifully. Let me give to the temple or the synagogue. Let me give to the poor. Let me perhaps give to my friends or my neighbors or widows or orphans. But he didn't come up with any of these good answers. Instead, look at verse 18. He said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns. I'll build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. So the man feels very good about himself. But look what God thinks. Verse 20, God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Although God said the man is a fool, like we talked about last week, he actually looks very what? He looks very wise. He was rich and able to accumulate all this wealth. He is a sharp farmer and a successful businessman. So last week, we also talked about how we can look wise in the world's eyes, but look like fools to God. And this man is a tremendous example of that, since we want to make sure that we look wise in God's eyes and not fools to him. We're going to talk this morning about how we can learn from this man to not be like him. First question I want to ask you. In verses 17, 18, and 19, what word or words did he repeat? In verses 17, 18, and 19, what word or words did he repeat? I and my, or I will and my. He said I six times. He said my five times, which is a revelation of his what? His selfishness or his pride. And this brings us to lesson one. The rich man was a fool because he didn't lesson one give. The rich man was a fool because he didn't lesson one give. You can almost look at this and think, well, perhaps there's something wrong with saving or investing or preparing for the future. And to be clear, that's not the case at all. There are plenty of verses in Scripture that applaud doing so. Here's just a few. Uh, I mean, that applaud saving or applaud preparing. That's not what this man's sin is. Proverbs 13, 22, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Why are, pro- why are ants, aside from working hard, set down as examples to look at? Because they save. Proverbs 6, 8, ants prepare bread in summer. They store it up then and gather food during the harvest. Proverbs 30, 25, ants are a people not strong, yet they store up their food in the summer. And God's point is these ants are wise because they store up, because they save, because they prepare for the future. So that's not what this rich man did wrongly. What was his problem then? It was his selfishness. It was storing it up only for himself. It was failing to think about anyone else. Everything was about him. You would expect him to mention who. Just, I mean, who, who might come to mind that you would expect to hear something about possibly? His family, his wife? Children, perhaps? Employees? I'm assuming he had some, perhaps giving them a bonus of some kind. His friends, his neighbors, his church family, or the individuals at the synagogue, which would be like his church family, but there's no mention of anyone else. 
I want to illustrate this man's selfishness by providing a simple economics lesson that we can see in the Old Testament. Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. And when Samaria was being sieged by the Syrians, things got so bad that, listen to this, 2 Kings 6.25, there's a great famine in Samaria as Syria sieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 pieces of silver and the fourth part of a quart of dove's dung was sold for five pieces of silver. So this is crazy. You'd have to pay me 80 pieces of silver just to take a donkey's head. And I don't know how much you'd have to pay me to take a bunch of dove's dung, but that's how bad it was where people were just looking for anything. I suppose the, the dove's dung was for fuel and just anything that they can eat, even getting a little bit more food off of this donkey said they ran out of food it's a simple issue of supply and demand there's no supply the demand is high and so the prices end up skyrocketing god was going to provide a whole bunch of food for the city so listen to this second king 7 1 elijah said hear the word of the lord thus says the lord tomorrow about this time six quarts of fine flour shall be sold for one shekel and 12 quarts of barley for one shekel at the gate of Samaria. And so God's going to provide so much food that the supply is going to uh, skyrocket and then, the, uh, and then the demand is going to plummet and additionally then the price is, the price are going to plummet as well. And the way that this relates to the rich fool is this is the economics behind his approach. He wants to prevent this from happening. He's sharp enough to know that if he takes all of his crop and he just floods the market with it, then there's going to be this huge supply, there's going to be less demand, and then the prices are going to completely plummet. And so what he wants to do is he wants to build all of these barns where he can store all of this up and then he can control the supply and how much is sort of given out over a period of time. And one way that we know this is the case is he didn't plan for another crop. He didn't didn't think of another harvest. He knew that he had enough now that if he has to sort of leak it out very slowly to the people, then he'd be able to live off the wealth from that for the rest of his life. And so it's very, very selfish. What's the application for us? The application is we should look at our wealth or our possessions or what we have, which I don't want to say it too much because of how much I shared during our brief series on covetousness and contentment, but by uh, the standards of the rest of the world, and especially people throughout history, we are very rich. We are staggeringly wealthy. And so if you were to look at this parable and you were to think, well, this is about a rich fool and it doesn't apply to me because I'm not rich, the rich part does apply to you. Now we're going to determine whether the fool part applies to us too. And so we are rich by most standards. And so the question is, what are we doing with our riches? Are we generous? Are we giving or are we selfish? Do we try to use what God has given us to bless others or just to keep it for ourselves like this man did? I want you to notice a sad contrast in these verses. In verse 19, look at what the rich fool said, that he had many goods or he had goods laid up for how long? Not a trick question, for how long? So it's many years. In verse 20, what did God say to him? He said, this night, your soul is required of you. And so he thought he had many years left. 
He didn't even have months or weeks or even days left. He had hours. And this brings us to lesson two. The rich man was a fool because he didn't lesson two plan for eternity. The rich man was a fool because he didn't plan for eternity. There are different people in Scripture, and it almost seems as though their lives serve as ironies. Almost as though the people who are most known for something tend to fail regarding this great strength that they're known for. For example, Abraham. He's known primarily for his what? For his faith. He's the father of faith. But there were a couple times in his life where he looked like he lacked faith, right? Where he seemed to be very fearful. He was afraid of dying, even though God had not brought this nation from him. Like God said that he would. He had no reason to fear. So he tells his wife, I'm afraid they're going to kill me. You go ahead and tell them that you're my sister. And he does this twice. Samson, the strongest man to ever live. But regarding Delilah, how did he look? Very weak, almost shockingly weak. It's a painful account to read as he gives in to her. Solomon, known for his what? For his wisdom, later in his life, he looks very foolish. And the rich man's life is a a big irony too because he thinks that he's this great long-term planner. He thinks that he has the future all figured out and taken care of. And the irony is that he was a terrible long-term planner. He was completely unprepared for the future. He had this earthly, temporal view that completely ignored the spiritual and the eternal. And so when you look at him, he's a man who got life and death wrong. Let me say it one more time. He got life and death wrong. And what I mean by that is he got life wrong because if you look in verse 15, Jesus said, one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Or in other words, this life is not about the physical or it's not about our possessions. And how did he get, do you see how he got life wrong? (laughs) He thought this life is entirely or exclusively about our possessions. And he also got death wrong because he thought the death was where? Far away, far in the future, removed from him. No idea that it was that very night. If you write in your Bibles, you can circle the words, this night your soul will be required of you, and you can write James 1, 9 to 11. One more time, if you write in your Bible, you can circle the words, this night your soul will be required of you, and you can write James 1, 9 and 11. In those verses, it says, let the rich boast, not in his riches, but in his humiliation, because, or in his weakness, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away The sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. And that's exactly what happened with this man. Right in the midst of his pursuits, right after he struck it rich, he's probably the best picture of these verses in all of Scripture. But how many people can his example apply to? How many people have thought that they had, maybe not even just years, but at least decades still ahead of them, only to receive the news that they've got some disease or there's some terrible diagnosis? And I would say that these are the fortunate people. These are the fortunate people because it gives them what? Time to prepare. They learn that their lives are coming to an end, 
And so they can make any needed adjustments for that. What about unbelievers whose lives come to an end unexpectedly? Perhaps an accident or perishing in their sleep. They have no time to prepare for eternity because they've squandered all of it. Now, if you ask most people how they want to die, and this isn't a joke, they'll say, I'd like to go when I'm very old in my sleep, very peacefully. And that sounds wonderful. I think we'd all, we all hope that can be the case. Far later in life, lots of decades ahead of us, painlessly while we're sleeping. This is what I would say. That is only the way to go or a good way to go if what? You're saved. That is only a good way to go if you know the Lord. If you do not know the Lord, that is a terrible way to go. You go to sleep one night, feeling safe and secure, and then you wake up in the presence of the Lord. We'll talk about what that might look like a little later when we see how the Lord interacted with this man. For people that don't know the Lord, the best thing for them is to get the news that this man got, which is your life is coming to an end, Perhaps it's the diagnosis or some other way that they learn that they don't have decades or years left, but they have months or perhaps weeks, and then they can prepare and hopefully be woken up from that spiritual slumber that they're in. It's interesting, as Keith talked about his grandfather being 90 years old, we, if I said, where is, the, where is the deathbed conversion in Scripture? What comes to mind or who comes to mind? Thief on the cross. And I heard something about that that I thought was very good. There is, a, there is a deathbed conversion in Scripture with the thief on the cross, which shows us that it can happen. But how many are there? There's one. There's one, which tells you don't look at that as the pattern or the expectation. So we can hear those testimonies like Keith shared, and they're wonderful because they encourage us that it can happen. But the reality that there's one in Scripture tells me that while it can happen, it doesn't happen that often. It's not something to bank on. And so this parable should cause us to ask, are we thinking about eternity? Are we living in light of it? Do we act as though or recognize that our soul could be required of us tonight? And speaking of our souls, this brings us to lesson three. The rich man was a fool because he didn't, lesson three, know to whom his soul belonged. He didn't know to whom his soul belonged. Look with me at verse 19. The rich man said, I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. This is not a trick question again. It's clear that he thought his soul belonged to who? Himself. If I said to you, what did the rich man lose? You might quickly say his wealth and his possessions And that's true, but he lost something way more important than that, and that is his soul. Because in verse 20, God said, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And so he lost a lot, but I'll tell you, everything else he lost pales in comparison to the loss of his soul. I I hope none of us would think twice about giving up everything we could give up in this life if it meant being able to keep our souls for eternity, or, or be with the Lord, what I mean is going to heaven. He was going to lose his soul. It's going to be taken from him because it didn't belong to him. It belonged to God. Matthew 16, 26, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? 
Or what should a man give in return for his soul? And um, nobody would answer anything other than nothing for that because there's nothing that we would trade for our souls. And this rich man is a great picture of this verse too because it looks as though, especially in the ancient world, like he gained the whole world. In, a, in an age when people lived lives that bordered on what we would consider to be poor or, or approaching poverty, this man experienced a, a level of extravagance and opulence that to him would have you know, set him just levels and levels exponentially above everyone else. But there should have been no amount of wealth or possessions that made this a trade-off to have all of that and then to lose his soul in the process. And so this parable should cause us to ask, are we aware that we completely belong to God? Everything about us belongs to him, even our souls belong to him. And do we recognize that we're going to be called to account, that we're going to stand before him as, stu- as stewards of everything that we have in this life, all of our relationships, all of our possession, all of our time, even our very own souls, we are stewards of them and are going to be called to account before God. Look back at verse 20 one more time. God said to him, the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So in other words, he's going to leave all this behind for someone else. This reminds me of Solomon's words in Ecclesiastes 2.18. Solomon said, I hated another very wealthy man. I hated all of my toil, all of my work under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And that's what God said is going to happen here with this rich man. And this echoes something that we've discussed many times over the last few months. I could share this and you could say, are we seriously going to talk about this again? Just bear with me one, one moment. <laughs> the, this reality that we can't take anything with us is what I'm talking about. Because when we were in 1 Timothy 6, you don't have to turn there, but in verse 7, Paul said, we brought nothing into the world. We can't take anything out of the world with us. We're leaving it all behind. When we went to Ecclesiastes 5, In verse 15, Solomon said, as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again. Naked as he came, he shall take nothing for all his toil that he may carry away in his hand. And so you say, we've got it. We've got it. We can't take anything with us. We're leaving it all behind. What if I told you that scripture also makes it sound like you can take stuff with you? Listen to this. Matthew 6, 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But what? But what? Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. So that sounds like we we can do what? Almost sounds like we can take it with us, right? Bring some into the next life. So you can say, well, which is it? You know, we can or we can't. Here's the balance. We can't take anything with us, but we can send it on ahead. And the rich man did not do this, which reveals another reason he was a fool. The rich man was a fool because he didn't less than four send anything ahead. He didn't send anything ahead. One of the other ironies of his life, one of the strong contrasts that's supposed to present itself to us is his great riches on this side of heaven, and then in the next life, his great poverty. Completely wealthy in this life, enters eternity completely destitute. Notice the parallelism. 
between two statements Jesus made. Just listen to this. In Matthew 6.20, Jesus said, Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. And then in Luke 12, 21, Jesus said the rich man did what? He laid up treasure. He did lay up treasure too. In Matthew 6, 20, Jesus said, lay up treasure. He said, lay it up in treasure. But in Luke 12, 21, what did he say about the rich man? This rich man laid up treasure, but he laid it up for himself in this life. So he did the opposite of what Jesus said to do. Listen to what James says to the rich. James 5, 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Consider how similar this is to what Jesus said. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, just like Jesus said it would happen with earthly wealth being destroyed by moth and rust. I'm sure James must have a Jesus words in mind when he wrote this. And their corrosion will be evidence against you. And this is why. Because you have laid up treasure for the day of judgment. That's what James said. So the rich aren't condemned for being rich. That wasn't their sin, but their sin was laying up the riches for themselves, where the moth and the rust destroy it, versus sending any of it ahead. And so we have two choices with all of our wealth. We can be like the rich fool, we can keep it for ourselves. And if we take this approach, then when we die, we are completely separated from it. We enter eternity totally destitute, like the rich fool. What's the other choice with our wealth? To take and do what with it? Send it ahead. Send it ahead to heaven. I'm thinking of another sermon I might preach because I couldn't fit it in this sermon, talking about how we can take wealth and how we can send it ahead. To put it simply, at this moment, we use it for God's kingdom. We're good stewards. I would say that the best stewards in this life have a tremendous amount of wealth waiting for them in the next life. Listen to this story. A rich man died, and he went to heaven. Abraham greeted him and said, Welcome to heaven. Let me show you where you will be staying. As they walked, the rich man saw beautiful mansions stretching out in every direction. They were constructed of gold and silver and precious gems. As they passed one mansion, the rich man said, Who gets to stay here? And Abraham replied, That's for your groundskeeper. He was a godly man who loved Jesus and served him all his life, and this is his reward. They continued to walk past other mansions until they reached an extremely large one. And the rich man asked Abraham, Is this one mine? And Abraham said, No, this one belongs to your maid. On the little bit of money you paid her, she raised six children and she gave to her church. They continued to walk, until they came to a different section of homes that were not as nice. As they went up a hill, they stopped in front of a shack. It was made of tar paper and used sheet metal. The front door was cut out of an old refrigerator box. (laughs) You didn't know they had refrigerator boxes in heaven, did you? It was held together with bailing wire, twine, and duct tape. After pausing for a moment, the rich man said... Who lives here? And Abraham responded, Well, this is yours. And the rich man couldn't believe it. He said, There must be some mistake. And Abraham said, No, there's been no mistake. We did the best we could with what you sent ahead. 
So I know it's kind of a comical story, but I think it illustrates something that we should consider. Even if you're a believer, heaven is going to be different for each person. It's going to be wonderful, but we're expected to be good stewards. And that means in your good stewardship, you're sending ahead for the next life. So let me say it like this. What we lay up for ourselves on this side of heaven for ourselves is what we lose for eternity because we chose to enjoy it. In this life, it kind of reminds me of much of the, the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus basically says you kind of have two choices with most of this life, with your giving, with your service, with your prayers, with your fasting. If you do it, for this life and you enjoy it in this life you lose it for the next life but what we use on this side of heaven for god's kingdom is what we get to keep for eternity that's what we're sending ahead so we should ask ourselves am i being a good steward of what god's given me am i sending anything ahead in last week's sermon i asked you if the rich fool looked foolish and you said no he looks wise i want to ask you another question about him does he look evil does he look evil i don't think he looks evil From a worldly perspective, I would say no. But I would even say, from a biblical perspective, in reading this parable, he doesn't look evil. Because if I was to say, point me to the verse discussing him lying, or if I said, point me to the verse that discusses him cheating or stealing, he seemed actually to be a very diligent and hardworking man, He seemed to obtain his wealth in an honest and a moral way. Yet God still said he was a fool, and even though it doesn't say this, I think it's implied that he also went where when he died? He's going to hell. To me, I look at this and I think this looks surprisingly strong, a surprisingly strong judgment, surprisingly strong criticism for a man that you could argue does not look evil. Or many people could even argue looks fairly good or fairly moral because he seemed to be hardworking. There's no real record of much sin in his life. And so you, we should ask, why was he judged so strongly? What was it that made him so bad? And the answer is at the end of verse 21, if you look there with me. It says, he was not rich toward God. He was not rich toward God. And this brings us to our last lesson. The rich man was a fool because he didn't, lesson five, think about a relationship with God. He was a fool because he didn't, lesson five, think about a relationship with God. Many times, and this is somewhat significant to me because I think it characterized my beliefs for 20 years, I generally determined goodness by what I had not done wrong. Some more time, I generally determine goodness by what I hadn't done wrong, and many people do the same. For example, if you were to talk to people and ask them where they're going to, let's say unbelievers, ask them where they're going to go when they die, they're going to tell you heaven. And if you ask them why, they're going to tell you they're a good person. And if you ask them why they're a good person, they're going to tell you because they never killed anyone, or they've never committed adultery. So in other words, to them, or to me for much of my life, goodness was determined by what I hadn't done. And the reason we do that is because we love to compare ourselves with others. (laughs) We love to think about all those people who are worse than us, wickeder than us, because it makes us feel very good about ourselves. 
And this rich fool is one of those instances in Scripture that strongly argues the wickedness or evil of going through this life and perhaps not doing anything terribly wicked, but not thinking about God. Waking up each day and giving no thought to him. Serving him, having a relationship with him. The rich fool reminds me of the third servant in the parable of talents. Because that servant is another individual that, to me, receives a very, very strong indictment from the Lord. The Lord looks at him and calls him what? Wicked and lazy. We, we get the lazy part, but we could ask, why was he called wicked? Because he didn't look that wicked. He just looks like he didn't do anything bad throughout his life. But that's also not just what made him lazy. That's also what made him wicked. He didn't do anything bad throughout his life, but he never did anything for the Lord. And the rich fool is different in that he wasn't lazy. He was very hardworking. But he was similar in that he also did not do anything for the Lord. Now, what does it mean that he wasn't rich toward God? At first, and this is one of those times, so when I'm studying, I can approach a passage, and I can, for whatever reason, believe it's communicating something. And then in my studying, learn, it's communicating something different than I thought. And when it said he's not rich toward God, I thought that that meant that he hadn't done anything for God. And that is true, but that's not what it means that he wasn't rich toward God. It means he didn't have a relationship with the Lord. Listen to the way it's translated in other Bibles. The Amplified said, said, says he's not rich in his relationship toward God. The NLT says he's, he does not have a, have a rich relationship with God, and the God's Word translation says he's not rich in his relationship with God. So it has to do with him going through his life and having no relationship with the Lord. If the world looked at this man, if, if he was written about in the news, or he was your neighbor, people would say there was a real tragedy associated with the end of his life. But they would get the tragedy wrong. They would say, it's too bad that he died just when he had everything going for him. How tragic is it that his life came to an end right after he got all of this wealth? How unbelievably sad that he's going to have to leave all of this behind and he never got to enjoy any of it. That is not the tragedy for this man. The tragedy is that he didn't know the Lord. The tragedy is that his life is coming to an end and he's about to enter a Christless eternity. The tragedy is that his life in eternity is going to parallel his life on the earth. For people that go to hell, it's a continuation of what this life was. Separation from God, right? Isn't it? I'm not the most comfortable person with hell. I think I've shared with you before the struggle I can have with it. But hell is the continuation of what people have chosen through this life. Not to, not to have a relationship with the Lord. Not to know him to think only about themselves, and then they're given that for all of eternity, that separation. Consider this. He never thought about God while he lived. There's nothing, there's no mention of God, nothing about him until verse 20 when God says to him, fool. And can you imagine that? Can you imagine living your whole life, never giving a thought to God, and then your first thought of him is when he calls you a fool? or tells you your life is going to come to an end, your soul is required of you. 
And God had blessed him with so much. What had he given him? What had God given this man? He'd given him wisdom. He'd given him an amount of strength. He'd given him wealth. He'd given him success, his business, his health. God provided all of the circumstances for this harvest to produce so plentifully. But despite everything that God had given him, on a daily basis, he never gave any thought to the Lord. And there are people going through this life, and they're exactly like him. They give no thought to the Lord, no thought to him regarding any of the blessings that they get to enjoy. They give no thought to him regarding their relationships that he has blessed them with, or their jobs, or their food, or their wealth, or their homes, or their possessions, or their health. Have you ever thought that every breath you can take is a gift from God? People will get angry And I understand it, and I'm not faulting anyone, and and I'm sure I would struggle with it too, to get the diagnosis of some terrible disease. But if we remember that every breath that God has given us has just been an extension of his grace, then when those breaths stop coming, it's not something that we can be angry about. Because each one of those breaths was simply a gift. Creation itself that we enjoy when we walk outside this church, the trees, the sky, the air, all blessings. And this man, he enjoyed much of that. Matthew 5.45 speaks about God's grace, and it says that he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends the rain on the just and on the unjust. The rich man, he experienced much of this grace from God. It wasn't salvific grace, but it was the grace that allowed the rain to come down on his fields and for the sun to come down on his field at the right time. But still, he gave no thought to the Lord. This is a parable, which means it can't be taken literally. But there's still truth behind it, points that we're supposed to learn. And I could not help thinking of how much this parable pictures what is going to take place for many people and and how accurate this really is to what the end of their lives will be like when they've given no thought to the Lord, they've experienced his blessings and his grace throughout their lives, but they don't thank him, they don't worship him, they have no interest in him. And the first time they think of him is when they stand before him. I mean, could anything be more terrifying than that? To have rejected God throughout your life, not served him whatsoever, and then your first real acknowledgement of him is basically when you're falling on your face in sheer terror, having the sins you've committed throughout your lives brought back, shared with you, so you can see how deserving you are of the judgment that's about to be poured out. Matthew 25, 30, it says, cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For some people, that, that, those will be the words that they hear. Initially, I thought, well, maybe it'll be like Matthew 7, where Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. But th- that's for religious people. Matthew 7 is about religious people who thought that they were saved by their works. This is the wicked person who's wicked simply because he was not religious whatsoever, gave no thought to the Lord. This is the the agnostic, the atheist. And this parable is making these important points, and one of the most important is that there's it's only the most foolish person who goes through this life without giving any thought to God. As we come to the end of this parable, I want to get you to reflect on something. It reveals many important things that riches can't do. Let me say this one more time. 
This parable reveals many important things that riches can't do. For example, riches could not keep this man alive any longer once he was told that his death was approaching. And you think about that. Think about some of the people. Steve Jobs, this is not a commentary on his morality or immorality, of which I have very little familiarity and couldn't comment anyway, but I can say this. His money, all of the billions of dollars that he had, could not keep him alive any longer. His riches, the rich man here, could not buy back all the opportunities that he missed while he was being selfish and thinking only about himself. The rich man, his riches could not make him rich toward God. After he had spent his entire life ignoring him, he couldn't put forth enough money and say, okay, well now take, take all the money that I have, all of these riches, and allow me now to be rich toward God. And then probably the most sobering thing that his riches couldn't do is they could not save his soul. They could not save his soul. All of the money in the world. And so consider the irony. In verse 19, look what he said to his soul. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. That's what he said to his soul. That was the last thing that his soul was going to experience. The very furthest thing from his soul's experience was going to be relaxing, eating, drinking, and being merry. Because he was a rich man who happened to be on his way to hell. He's going to experience the opposite of that. Torment, suffering for all of eternity. So we look at this selfish man, and this is what else I want to say. I'm selfish. And you're selfish. We can look at this man and consider his selfishness. We're selfish. He thought only about this life. But often, who also thinks only about this life? Me. This man did not plan for eternity. How often do we not plan for eternity? He didn't send anything ahead. Are we sending everything ahead? There's plenty of stuff I'm sure that I'm going to leave behind. He didn't think about God. And I am ashamed to say that there's plenty of my life that I didn't think about God and still don't think about God. So at this point, you might expect me to say, so let's stop being selfish. I'll stop, you stop, let's think about the next life. Let's plan for eternity. Let's send stuff ahead. Let's think about God. But that's not the gospel. Because we are never going to be completely free from our selfishness. You can be saved, and when you're saved, you're still selfish. And if you deny that, then you're acknowledging you're also prideful (laughs) and a liar. We are never, ever going to perfectly plan for eternity. We are never, ever going to send everything ahead. There will never be a day that we always think about God. We might have some days that are better than others, but if you're anything like me, I'm sure you spend many days thinking plenty more about yourself than you do about the Lord. Serving yourself versus serving Him. The gospel is that if we recognize these truths about ourselves, our sin, our failures, we confess that sin, 
we turn to Christ, he saves us. Because our sin leaves us, spiritually speaking, as poor as this man. When you look at this man's spiritual poverty, you have to see yourself being as spiritually poor as him. But here's the good news. Here's the gospel. In Luke 4.18, Jesus said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the good news or the gospel to the poor. So if you think you're spiritually rich, Christ didn't come for you, and he doesn't have anything for you. That's what that's saying. If you are confident in your righteousness, if you are a proud person, Jesus can't help you. But if you recognize your spiritual poverty, if you recognize that you fall short, if you recognize that you're a sinner, then Christ came for you. He shares the gospel with you. His arm is not too short to save. His ear is not too deaf that when you cry out to him for mercy, that he will hear you. If we recognize our spiritual poverty, Jesus offers us his spiritual riches. Ephesians 1, 7, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. If we want to be rich toward God, we confess our sin, repent to them, and look to Christ. Father, we thank you that you have made a way for us to be spiritually rich that does not depend on our works and our performance, because if we were forced to trust in our best effort, we, would, we know we would fall so short of your glory. And so we thank you for a way that doesn't rest on us and on our effort, on what we have done or could do. We thank you for a salvation that rests on the finished work of your son and through repentance and faith in him, the riches of his life can be imputed to us as we are given his righteousness and our sin is imputed to him. And we thank you so much for that, Lord. And if there's anyone who hasn't recognized that reality, then we pray it's something you, that that would be wrought in their hearts by you. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen.